Welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Today we have our first repeat guest of the podcast. Mark Kennedy is a professor of law at Drake Law School. He is the director of the Drake Constitutional Law Center and is the James Madison Chair in Constitutional Law. Today's episode is a broad overview of the Bill of Rights. It is simply intended to ensure that listeners have at least a foundation knowledge of their rights as citizens of the United States, and it provides a starting point if you would like to research these topics in more depth. If you find this interview helpful, please subscribe and share with a friend. It really does help. And now, to the interview. Okay, so the First Amendment, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So there's a lot going on there. Right. And so let's separate two things. There's a religion part to the First Amendment and a free speech part to the First Amendment. In terms of the religion part, what it's really doing is saying uh, two main things. One, uh, the government can't establish an official religion. So England has a Church of England. You know, we, we, we can't have an official Church of the United States. And that's what the Establishment Clause is doing. Now, it's been substantially broadened to also prohibit the government from doing things that basically help certain religions too much. And so that's the other thing it does. So, you know, there might be a law that, you know, is proposed to try to be uh, helping just the Christian religion. You know, that would be problematic, even though that's not a law that establishes an official church. If the government's kind of promoting one church over another, that's a problem. So that's the establishment clause part. Then there's something called the free exercise clause, and that basically gives individuals the opportunity to worship as they wish. And uh, that's what free exercise means, you know, freely exercise what your religion is. The uh, free exercise clause, though, also has a potential limit, if you will, in that uh, if there are governmental restrictions on people's ability to freely exercise their religion, then that means that those restrictions could be problematic. So right now, one of the big issues, just to be real specific, is there are laws on the books. The Affordable Care Act, which is sometimes called Obamacare, had some uh, requirements that companies provide uh, contraceptives and other um, sort of uh, options for for women to... uh, and men to have uh, the ability to um, basically, you know, have freedom with regard to reproductive decision making. But some companies that are um, very religious say, well, if they're required to do that, that imposes on them and it, it burdens their free exercise. So that's where that's the big issue. So that's the religion part of the clause. Uh, in terms of the free speech part, should I? Yes. Go to that. In terms of the free speech part, huge area. You know, one of the uh, big funny things about it is the whole First Amendment talks about Congress shall not do these things. But 
over time, the Supreme Court has ruled that it's not just Congress, but it's just government generally, even state governments and local governments can't do certain things. And basically, what that clause has evolved into is an incredibly broad protection of free speech. The U.S. probably protects free speech more than any other country in the world. We protect all kinds of offensive free speech. There's case law about uh, you know, profanity being something that can be protected free speech. There's case law uh, you know, of other kinds that uh, just basically in this country prohibit hate speech. Racist hate speech in this country gets protection. We're probably one of only a couple countries in the world that do that. So we protect a lot of speech. We protect a lot of uh, speech that's offensive. And the, the idea is, well, let's get all the speech out there. And even the offensive speech, people will respond to it and will basically argue and point out the flaws in that. And so we'd rather have this what's sometimes called marketplace of speech instead of having the government restrict it. <clears throat> having said that, uh, government can restrict speech in certain areas if the laws are really well drafted, mm -hmm. really specific, really precise. So uh, the government can prohibit obscenity. The government can prohibit you know, sexually explicit speech that goes too far. It can prohibit fighting words. It can prohibit someone from inciting others to engage in criminal activity or to engage in harming people of a certain race. So because what happens in those cases is the speech really isn't just speech. It's almost speech that has an element of criminal conduct mm -hmm. to it, particularly in the case of incitement. And that line between what is speech and what is criminal advocacy has been the big issue the court has wrestled with for years. And the internet's made that candidly even more complicated. So so that's a sh uh, sort of short version of some of the issues that uh, the First Amendment's about. It's, uh, it's a big deal. It's one of the biggies. Right. So our next one is the exciting one. The yeah. Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the Second Amendment for years was something that people disagreed about. People disagreed about whether it meant that individuals have a right to bear arms or that that's not at all what it involved. It meant that if you were in something like a militia, you could then and did have a right to have a weapon, but you didn't as an individual, if you weren't in a militia, have that right. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court resolved that in a case called Heller, H-E-L-L-E-R. And in Heller, the U.S. Supreme Court basically ruled that it is an individual right to bear arms. Um, it's not an individual right to, you know, have bazookas. You know, we talk about weapons and we, they, the court said it's the kind of weapons that would be similar to the ones that existed at the framing. Obviously, they're a little bit different. I mean, but, uh, you know, a handgun today, that would be the kind of thing that would be analogous to sort of some of the weapons that existed back in the 18th century. So that would be something that would be protected. But what Heller did that some people don't fully appreciate is there's language in there that says that doesn't mean the government can't have some reasonable restrictions. So you could have laws, the court even talks about this, that prohibit uh, ex-felons, people who committed felonies, 
from being able to own a gun. Or um, you could have laws potentially that say, and it would be, you know, have to be something that's drafted carefully, someone who has a severe mental illness and maybe even a record of violence could be prohibited if the, if the law was well drafted. So the bottom line is the Second Amendment means individuals have a right to bear arms and have that, have that kind of opportunity to own a gun, etc. But the language of the court cases in the area is such that there are restrictions that are allowed, and so there's going to be a lot of case law. And in fact, there's a case now pending in the U.S. Supreme Court regarding, well, how big can the controls be on this individual right? So this is going to be litigated. It'll be uh, talked about and discussed further. Right. And it is used a lot as the Second Amendment as a, uh, you know, a reason to have, continue to have guns. And what would be the arguments for and against using that as the reason for that political position? Well, you know, certainly as a constitutional legal decision, there's no doubt that now there is a right that people have to uh, individuals having firearms that, as I said, are somewhat analogous to the ones that used to exist. There are questions about what is analogous. I mean, a bazooka is not analogous. Uh, Everyone seems to agree a handgun would be, um, you know, a semi-automatic rifle and things like that seem to be considered sufficiently like the rifles that used to exist or uh, I don't know what they were called then. They had a, they had a particular name I can't that I that I can't remember. But uh, there's just a lot to debate now. Politically, the debate is not then about whether the individual has a right. It's about how far can the controls go. Mm-hmm. That part of the Heller yeah. decision that says how far can the limitations go in terms of preventing certain individuals or certain institutions, for example might be able to prevent people from bringing guns into the institution. I mean, a, you know, a doctor's office, for example. So those issues are where there's plenty of political back and forth. Uh, the pro-gun advocates argue that that language in Heller really shouldn't be uh, treated except in extreme cases as allowing people to not have weapons. Uh, and very extreme cases. And, uh, you know, those who support gun control have lost the battle on individuals, but have very much engaged in the debate on those particular examples from Heller and just in general other very, very reasonably seeming policy restrictions uh, on people having guns should be upheld and, you know, their argument is the fewer guns, the less shootings. And, of course, the other side's argument is that sometimes guns can protect people. Uh, the most interesting area to me is schools, you know, where you sometimes see uh, pro-gun advocates saying, you know, if only teachers were trained in how to use weapons and had weapons, then some of these school shootings wouldn't occur. And then the other side says, to be candid from their perspective, uh, I'm not taking an opinion, but from their perspective, they think that's crazy, you know. And certainly, from what I've seen, most teachers being interviewed do not seem to be eager to be trained and 
to be obliged to have a gun in their classroom so far. But that's an issue that's being debated. Right. So our next one, as we mentioned earlier, uh, not as relevant anymore, but the Third Amendment, uh, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea there is, you know, during the Revolutionary War uh, and during other wars that occur, you can't force people generally to house soldiers. And that was something the British had done quite a bit in the colonial times? Yeah, yeah, that was something that had happened then. And so it's a part of the Constitution, it's a part of the Bill of Rights, it has a historical pedigree, but it's not something that we generally have run into a lot in uh, current situations. Right. And on to the fourth, mm -hmm. the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So the Fourth Amendment is incredibly complicated, even though it sounds not that long, it doesn't seem like it's that substantial, but, you know, the basic idea here is that you're not supposed to be able to engage, the government is not supposed to be able to uh, violate your privacy in terms of uh, search your house, search your car, uh, search your papers, uh, without good reason. And, you know, so there's language, you know, in here and language that has evolved about, you know, the fact that you can't have unreasonable searches and seizures, um, that oftentimes you have to have a warrant, which means you have, the government and the police have to go to a judge and, and get a document from a judge permitting them to search. Um, there are certainly exceptions in cases that occur, uh, let's say, an emergency is evidently just evolving um, on the street in terms of some situation involving someone with a gun or someone who's threatening uh, or seems to be threatening, uh, where the police will sometimes, without a warrant, act to sort of basically stop that person. Um, there was a controversy in New York City about something called stop and frisk, uh, which was a, a policy that was used there to try to deter crime, but it was done in a way that also potentially had some racial profiling, and so that created a controversy. So, uh, I mean, the bottom line with the Fourth Amendment is it's designed to protect your privacy, uh, the privacy, let's say, of your office, the privacy of your car, the privacy of your house, etc., uh, from being searched without good reason. Um, I think one of the most interesting areas where this issue comes up is uh, mega data collection. You know, there is clearly, from what we now know, um, and there are, you know, government agencies, and, and, you know, one in particular that has done massive surveillance of data, uh, often phone calls, often phone numbers. And if the numbers trigger and seem to be corresponding to something that might be suspicious like terrorist activity, you know, then the government might go further and that raises some serious Fourth Amendment issues uh, that have to be resolved. And there's even a secret court called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that in the context of counterintelligence with regard to foreign governments and things like that, well, uh, 
in that particular case, if you want to have the government, our government, engage in certain kinds of basically spying, they have to get permission from this special court. So. Right. So then on to the fifth. And no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject, subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So this is another biggie. Right. There's a lot going on here. Um, so let me just mention a couple of things that are going on here. Um, one is there's a prohibition on double jeopardy. And double jeopardy is basically the idea that, you know, once someone has been tried for a crime, you know, particularly if they're found innocent, the government can't prosecute them again. Even if the government, you know, found some potentially new evidence, you can't do that. So that's this twice put in jeopardy uh, language. Um, there's a self-incrimination uh protection here. You can't be forced to incriminate yourself. So sometimes you see government officials go in front of Congress. This is probably where it's seen most. Or if you watch television programs and movies, they show it in the criminal situation in a courtroom where someone is asked a question and uh, basically they say, well, I'm going to not answer that question on the grounds that it might incriminate myself. And they invoke the Fifth Amendment. Uh, what's important to note there is uh, that prosecutors love to try anything they can to then use that as a way of trying to make that person look really bad because they invoked it. But the law is pretty clear that you should be able to invoke this and not have that used against you because it's a right that's in the Constitution. But, but good prosecutors try to use that. Uh, there's a due process provision. This is unbelievably important. You know, due process of law in many ways is sort of the core of the rule of law, which is that basically the government can't take away um, your life, you know, which is unimaginable uh, in a sense given this language. Um, your freedom, that's what liberty generally means, your freedom or property without due process. And due process means typically that you have to be notified of what the government is trying to take from you, and you have to have a chance to be heard and basically oppose that. Uh, there's a little bit of complication as to whether you have to be heard before the deprivation or afterwards when it comes to government benefits, but you have to get a chance to show in court the government's wrong. Right. And you have to basically be given your process. And process of law, due process of law, is really the core of what the rule of law is about, which is government can't arbitrarily take stuff from you or injure you, etc., um, or you know, deprive you of your freedom. Lastly, uh, there's an, uh, what I would describe as the private property eminent domain clause, which uh, basically gives the government, despite what it says here, uh, significant power to actually be able to um, take private property from people for uh, public use, and this is called eminent domain, but the government has to provide just compensation. Um, there was a big case called Kelo, K-E-L-O, that gave the government a lot of power in this area. Uh, so it's not a, a, a great 
area right now in terms of individual rights because of this Kelo decision, which many people think was wrongly decided, but others uh, think followed um, some earlier cases. But that has to do with when can they take your property. So imagine a city's trying to engage in urban renewal or they want to build um, a community facility, but there's a private house there, and that house is just right in the way, and it, there's there's really no other place they can do things. The government can come in and say, you know, we're going to take your house, and if there's a sufficient public purpose, a court will uphold that if the government provides just compensation, meaning usually money of some type. Right, right, okay. And then on to the sixth, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So there's, again, a, this is one of those where there's a lot going on. I'm going to focus on one or two things. Uh, there's a, what's called a confrontation clause here, which basically says if you're being prosecuted criminally and there are witnesses who are uh, the people who are the basis for the prosecution, you have some right to confront them. That typically means if it were a criminal prosecution, your lawyer has the right to cross-examine those witnesses. Uh, Where this gets very complicated is in situations involving children, uh, and that becomes quite complicated uh, you know, if the witness is a child, uh, and different courts have handled that differently, the Supreme Court has tried to deal with that. That's that's quite complicated. So that's the confrontation clause. Um, you're supposed to have an assistance of counsel right, which means if you're criminally prosecuted, the government has to provide you with a public defender, even if you can't afford one or someone to defend yourself. So you have that right. That's there. Um, the jury is supposed to be impartial. So that basically means that, you know, you can't have a, a sort of a hang jury that's just already uh, set up to basically convict and, 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 and put the guy in, or, or woman in prison. So, uh, you know, what has happened is a lot of statutes have been enacted to implement Amendment 6. So there's a lot of statutes about jury selection. There's also information in here about you have a right to a speedy trial. There are statutes. There's a Speedy Trial Act in the federal courts that guarantees that you know you have to be tried by a certain time, or there have to be very exceptional reasons for an extension, which does sometimes get granted. So there's a lot going on here, but those are some of the issues. Right. Okay. And then the seventh in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed twenty dollars. The right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Yeah, the short version of this is it's the uh, right to a jury trial. Right. Now, the most interesting thing about this is um, this is a federal court right. It typically implicates both criminal and civil cases. Uh, we're now usually way past twenty dollars when we get to federal court. Though that 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 part's sort of become a little bit irrelevant. But <clears throat> the interesting thing about the right to a jury trial is it's one of the few rights that does not necessarily apply in the states. Mm-hmm. It's not in what's called incorporated. So it is possible that states can have um, situations where they don't grant a jury trial. 
another interesting thing about states is sometimes they don't require unanimity. So even if they have a jury, it might be enough to convict someone if just two-thirds of the jury says something. Um, the number of jurors can vary if you do have that right in the states. But this is one right which many people are puzzled by that the court has yet to sort of basically absolutely mandate that the states always follow. Most of these other rights we've talked about have been what's called incorporated, apply to the states, and the states are limited by these provisions. Right, okay. And then the eighth, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Yeah, so there's two issues here, and, and one of them is just a huge issue right now. So we really have a, a problem with regard to sometimes uh, people who are charged with crimes um, who who want to be able to challenge being charged, uh, having the uh, option of paying bail to get out. Well, if the bail is set at too high a level and the person's poor, and that scenario happens all too frequently, um, then that person is basically forced to stay in prison. And you have a real uh, wealth disparity in terms of someone rich can come up with a bail, someone poor who can't. So um, that's the problem. But the basic issue there is that you're not supposed to have excessive bail. And so, you know, courts need to be careful here. And that's why this is an issue, because some people are contending we do have too much in terms of bail requirements and fine requirements. Um, and then the second part, cruel and unusual punishment, um, you know, that's basically the idea that, you know, in, in a typical example, you know, the government, even if they charged someone with one of the crime and had them in prison because, let's say, they couldn't get bail, the government just couldn't, you know, torture them. And if a penalty was imposed by the court, uh, this is the more important part. If the court imposed a penalty, that penalty could not involve, let's say, all right, torture this person. That would be cruel and unusual punishment. Um, the death penalty is often given as the most extreme example of punishment, but uh, there's another provision in the Constitution that suggests the death penalty is not cruel and unusual punishment when it's done in situations where there's been full due process of law, full representation, etc., uh, but there's tons of people out there who think that should be viewed as cruel and unusual punishment because it's the ultimate punishment. So there's a big debate on that. Right. Regarding the bail, the when they set bail guidelines, or how does the process work exactly for that? What are, what are all the factors that come into play when setting bail? Well, I mean, the main factor seems to be, to some extent, well, there's two. The, the severity of the crime mm -hmm. and the danger that the person accused of the crime will flee. Right. will leave. And so, <clears throat> you know, if they think the person committed an incredibly dangerous crime, that they think the person is still dangerous, and if they think the person has lots of, lots of assets and lots of opportunities to flee, um, they're going to set really high bail. In rare cases, they won't even allow bail. Very rare cases, but they won't even allow bail. You know, if it's someone who, uh, you know, the crime is, and I, and I hate to say this, but if it's, let's say, a white-collar crime, and the person doesn't seem to be in any or very little risk of flight, then the bail, even if the crime is, seems somewhat serious, um, may be much less. So there's real equity issues about how bail gets set, but, but those are really the two main factors, I think, which is the severity of the crime and the flight risk. Right, okay. 
in the last two, the ninth, uh, mm -hmm. the enumeration and the constitution of certain rights should not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So there's a debate on what this means. I think most people, most scholars right now basically think that what this could mean, even though it's not utilized very often by the Supreme Court, is that people have rights, and some of those rights aren't listed here. And so, you know, the language is, that, you know, basically uh, there's this enumeration of rights here, but it shouldn't disparage that people have other rights, i.e., you know, we have a right to privacy. The U.S. Constitution has been interpreted that way. But if you read the document, there's actually no right to privacy in here. Mm -hmm. So one of the earliest cases finding that there's a right to privacy uh, invoked the Ninth Amendment and said, just because it's not in here doesn't mean it's not an obvious fundamental right that everyone must have. Can you imagine a world where there was no? Um, there are some who believe that's a misinterpretation of this clause, um, a minority of people, I mean, a minority of scholars, and they think this clause really uh, doesn't have to do with just creating unlimited rights, but it has to do with basically a way of protecting people from the federal government in certain areas, and only the federal government, and thus it's not some broad rights provision that protects you from both the state and federal government, etc. So there's a debate on that. The U.S. Supreme Court, to some extent, hasn't totally clarified that issue, although they seem to have, in the one case they talked about it, called Griswold, leaned in favor of the broader interpretation, and there's some other cases but it's not fully decided yet. Right, okay. In the 10th, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So the 10th, I, I often just refer to this as the states' rights mm -hmm. provision. You know, it, and so to some extent, the 9th is kind of this provision that seems to, at least on its face, give people more rights than are necessarily listed here. But the 10th says, and this is important, uh, that this is do a document that creates a federal government, but our federal government is a government of limited powers. Right. Limited powers. So no matter how big people think the federal government is, it actually only has limited powers, and everything it does kind of has to be linked to some enumerated provisions in here. And so what this is saying is, if some power is not uh, specified here as going to the federal government, uh, that means it's possible, and maybe even likely, that as long as it's a traditional common law power that states and communities have had, um, you know, like local law enforcement or, uh, you know, keeping the streets, uh, you know, sanitary in a locality, for example, uh, things like that, um, there's just a lot of powers that are not listed here. And when they're not listed here, uh, under the common law, if they've been recognized, then that means they're powers that belong to either the state or the state localities. Right. Okay. And the last topic I'd like to briefly discuss is incorporation, as we mentioned, with the First Amendment and the uh, Seventh. And that process, if I understand correctly, was prompted a bit by the Fourteenth Amendment. <clears throat> sort of, yes. So what happened was uh, the, the 14th Amendment is a Civil War era amendment. So it's different from these first 10, which were at the time of the Revolution. The, the 14th Amendment basically said that most rights 
and I'm paraphrasing, uh, that the the, uh, states can't deprive you, for example, of due process and can't deprive you of equal protection. And what the Supreme Court did was it came along and it said, you know, the fact that the 14th Amendment has that word due process in it in particular, and due process, as I said earlier, is almost the most basic right of all. It's the, the, the idea of the rule of law. Well, if the rule of law restricts the states, then most of those first 10 amendments are all about the rule of law. So even if the First Amendment is says Congress, the 14th Amendment, by talking about due process and saying the states can't violate due process, well, due process and the rule of law has to include protecting free speech, even though that's back in the First Amendment. And so what has happened is most of the first 10 amendments are now viewed as amendments that also apply to the states, uh, with uh, some exceptions. As I said, the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial is an exception. And the basic idea is the 14th Amendment is about the rule of law. It's about due process. It, It clearly governs and prohibits what the states can do. And if the rule of law doesn't also incorporate most of those first 10 amendments, then it would be a joke. So the court has interpreted that due process language in the 14th Amendment as meaning that most of those first, eight, those first 10 amendments apply to the states. And that's, that's what's called incorporation. Right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Sure. You can learn more about Professor Kendi's work by visiting ssrn.com and searching for Mark Kendi. Thank you for listening.